Acts chapter 27. We'll consider the entire chapter, but for sake of time, we'll zoom in to verses 10 to 25 to begin. Acts 27, beginning in verse 10. Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run again on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Oh God, we pray that you would take this ancient and inspired text and by the power of the Holy Spirit enact faith in our hearts to trust in you when things are calm and when things are stormy. May you be our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found was blind, but now I see. Those are the words of John Newton back in 1772, the writer of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton was a testimony of God's grace and providence in his life. His mother died when he was only seven years old, and then he began a life at sea with his father. His life included things like being the captain of a slave-trading ship, being enslaved himself, and being caught in a violent storm, like we just read about, and a shipwreck. After Newton was rescued from slavery, that's when the shipwreck occurred. And during the storm, Newton and the entire crew lost hope and believed that they were going to die. Here's what Newton said as he saw a glimmer of hope in the midst of the darkness 
of that storm. He said, I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor. I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to a reconciled God and call him Father. My prayer for mercy was like the cry of the raven, which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. And here's what he said. He said, in the gospel, I saw at least a glimmer of hope. But on every other side, I was surrounded with black, unfathomable despair. You ever felt that way? Like everything around you is just uncertain and stormy and you're being carried along like a boat in the midst of the sea and you've lost all control of where you're going? Well, like John Newton says here, there was one thing that provided a light in the darkness. One thing that provided hope in the midst of uncertainty and that was the gospel of Christ. And so Newton describes that day By saying, I've never allowed this day to pass unnoticed since the year 1748. For on that day, the Lord came from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. And that is the impetus for his famous song, Amazing Grace. And we sing that today. We say, I was once blind, but now I see. That's your testimony. If you are in Christ one time in your life. You were blind to the things of this world. But now, by God's grace, your eyes have been opened. That doesn't necessarily mean physical sight, but spiritual sight. Being able to apply God's word to your circumstances and make sense of it all. And you know it. You know that if you're a Christian, things in this world start making more sense. But let's be brutally honest today. Things don't always make sense, do they? We go through times of doubt. Sometimes we feel like we're in that boat and we could do nothing but surrender to the wind and the waves. Perhaps some of you right now feel like you are in the midst of a storm in your life. And you may have realized that though your eyes have been opened, it's hard to see amongst the chaos. Isn't that true in in just everyday life? When storms are thundering and people are shouting and waves are crashing, panic and fear and doubt set in. When things are going well, it's another story. When God has given us victory and there seems to be a calm in our lives, all is well. But when things are chaotic, we get confused. I remember when I was an elementary school Student, I was always fearful of my teacher's displeasure. I always listened for his or her voice. I remember to this day my first demerit. It was in first grade. And one of my classmates decided to talk to me during the teacher's lesson. And I made that fateful mistake of turning my head toward him and responding. Only to hear Mrs. Colston say... Damien, go to the board and put up a demerit. I still have nightmares about that. Ever since that day, I've tried my hardest when I was at elementary school to stare directly at the teacher whenever a student to my right or to my left was trying to talk to me because I wanted to focus and not get in trouble. 
And such a habit can become well, easy to do in a well-managed classroom where it's typically quiet and controlled with clear expectations. But you know that's hard to do when things are chaotic. You might know that. Most of us have been there. If you've been in elementary school or middle school and a substitute teacher walks in, that's like a free day, right? It's funny because last week I started my new job as a part-time substitute teacher. After 14 years of, of managing my own classroom and, and being the, the person in control, it doesn't matter. The students don't say, oh, you've got experience. We'll listen to you. My point is this, when things seem out of control, when things seem chaotic, when the order isn't what you are used to or what you expected, it's much harder to pay attention. It's hard to listen. It's hard to see clearly. And thus, for us as believers in Jesus Christ, when we go through the storms of life and we experience the chaos of life under the sun, in a sin-cursed world, living in these sin-cursed bodies... We become vulnerable. In those moments, will you stare straight at God? Will you listen to His voice? Because in those moments, we are much more vulnerable to listen to the voices of others. So I trust and I hope and I pray that this sacred text today, God's infallible word, will teach us all to keep our eyes on Christ. I want to, pun intended, set the wind in your sails today to encourage you, no matter what you're going through, that whatever storm you might be weathering, that your Lord is with you in the midst of those storms. In Acts chapter 27, we see the Apostle Paul continuing his journey to Rome. But not without hiccups and delays and storms. Among this chaos, there's clamor and chatter and hopelessness and many voices. And whose voice will the people heed on that boat? And what are the results of heeding those voices? And who should they have listened to? I believe Acts 27 is a case study in trusting the Lord's sovereignty in the midst of life's trials. And I pray that it would impact your heart by the power of the Spirit. You can see the outline on the screen. We're going to dive in now to point two, Luke's detailed account of the journey. And I'm simply going to go sort of verse by verse through this so we can get the whole picture. And I want you also to look at, as best you can, at a map that we have so you can get a little bit more of a glimmer of what it looked like um, for the journey. I know it might be hard to see, but if you follow the red line in the Mediterranean Sea, Today, we would have high-powered, engine-powered boats that can, that can cut right across the sea. But 2,000 years ago, that wasn't the case. They were powered by the winds and by sails. And so you might notice that the red line, which begins in the Judea area, in Caesarea, where Paul was, travels along, sort of traveling along the port. They had to go from port to port to port. They couldn't just cut right across. And so what might take just a few days for us today uh, would take weeks or months for them. They started in Caesarea, and the goal was to go to these ports and find other ships that were perhaps setting sail toward Rome. So I'll leave that up there, and you'll see some of these places mentioned in our journey in Acts 27. Look with me in Acts 27, verse number 1. 
The Bible says, And it was decided that we should sail for Italy. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Just by way of reminder, in our last section, Paul was under house arrest. He had made his appeal to Caesar. He didn't want to go back to Jerusalem for yet another trial about him being disruptive and blasphemous, none of which were true charges. And so as a Roman citizen, he said, I appeal to Caesar. And he was told by the governor, to Caesar you appeal, to Caesar you will go. And so Paul was put on a boat with other prisoners. He was um, put with Rome's best, a cohort of, of soldiers, Uh, the best technology of the time, the best equipment of the time to get him to Rome safe and sound so he can face one last trial before the highest court in the entire empire. If there were no hiccups during this journey, this should take them five weeks. Five weeks. Now you'll notice in uh, verse number one, the word we when it was decided that we should sail for Italy. So we have a first-person plural here. Why, why is that word used? Well, because the writer of Acts, who is Luke, is in the boat. So he's not just an eyewitness of, from afar. He's in the boat with Paul, and that's why this chapter is so detailed. His narrative strikes commentators. All, every commentator I've read is just blown away by the detail in Acts 27. And these details are not incidental. F.F. Bruce says the description of the voyage to Italy is a masterpiece of vivid narrative. Now think of yourself in the first century. Most people were not literate, but they have heard or have read to them stories like Jonah in the Old Testament and also ancient Greek epochs like the Odyssey. The first century reader would consider a righteous person anyone who fought a battle at sea and came out alive. Now, of course, in those days, travel was much more complicated. Most ships that were traveling in the Mediterranean carried cargo. And so if you want to find a ship that's going your way, you had to go to a port and see where they were heading. You couldn't open up an app and, you know, make reservations or buy a ticket. These ships would journey along the ports. They were not motor-powered, so they were subject to changing winds. And there there were even superstitions that prevented the ships from taking sail certain days. Uh, Just like we today, there are many architects who wouldn't um, build a 13th floor in a skyscraper because 13 is supposedly unlucky. So in those days, the Romans um, did not believe in setting sail on August 24th, October 5th, or November 8th because they were supposedly unlucky. So the many things hindered travel from being as easy as we take for granted today. Now you see the map on the screen, and that's why they're going from port to port to port. Now we go to verse number 2 in our text. Verse 2 says, Embarking in a ship of a dramatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And so these are the friends of Paul traveling with him. Paul, Aristarchus, and Luke. Then there's a bunch of prisoners. Then there's a bunch of soldiers. All in the same boat, traveling from port to port on their way to Rome. Verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius, that's the the commander, the, the centurion, the Roman soldier, treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends 
and be cared for. Well, that's a blessing. And we've seen Paul taken care of all throughout our time in, in his journey, right? He's been given a time in a palace. He's been given uh, food. He's not been treated poorly. But don't forget, he still is in chains. He's still under arrest. And so most commentators would say in verse 3, Paul is able to get off the boat at the port and go see his friends. But he's not going alone. He's going with soldiers chained uh, to him. But what this does show us is that Julius does not believe that Paul is a threat. And we'll see that later as Paul gives advice to the whole crew that they eventually listen to. Verse 4. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Again, I don't know if you can quite see it, but Cyprus is a yellow island um, sort of on the, the right side of the map. Sailing under the lee means to sail in such a way that the island protects the ship from westerly and northwesterly winds of summer and autumn. It just means using the island as protection, only sailing close to the island and not in the depths of the sea. Verse 5. And when we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found the ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, and put us on board. So verse 5 and 6 is the transfer. I'm sure you've experienced transfers of planes or buses. Well, this is their transfer. They're at a port and they find a bigger ship from Alexandria, Egypt. So probably this ship is a grain ship because Rome got their grain from Egypt. And they're going to get on this ship because this ship is going directly to Rome. So everyone's transferring from one to another. And these ships, according to historians, were large, protected, and even insured um, ships. These are the best of the best because Rome wants their grain. And so they're going to make sure these ships make it to Rome safely. So now they're on a new ship, a protected ship. We get to verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty in Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salome. Or Salmon. Um, by the way, I don't know what in your mind how fast you think these ships are going, but the average speed of this ship was six miles per hour. So when Luke says in verse 7, we sailed slowly, he means it. It's pretty slow. Verse 8. Coasting along it with difficulty. Now things are getting a little hard. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of La Cie. So now they're on the island of Crete. They come to a port named Fair Havens. I don't think that's incidental. Fair Havens. What a beautiful name. It means good harbor. Like a rest from, from this arduous trek. They're, they're in the midst of this good, restful place. In the midst of... A coming storm. Keep that in your mind as we continue. Verse 9 and 10. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. So here's where there's some conflict. The people in charge of the ship going to want to get to Rome as fast as possible. Remember, this is a commercial ship. They have to drop off the load of grain, come back and get more, right? If there's a delay in that, that could cost them a lot of money. So they've got to get there. 
And they're in fair havens. But Paul recognizes the time of the year. That's why Luke says in verse 9, because even the fast was over. He's talking about the day of atonement. This has nothing to do with the day itself. It's simply like when, if we say, um, after Labor Day, the weather will get nicer. Which I think we've learned is not necessarily true these days. But we're talking about a time in the calendar. So Paul says, because the fast is over, the winter weather is approaching. The voyage is going to be dangerous. We should stay in fair havens for now. That's his argument. Paul was an experienced traveler of the sea. It's not that God gave him a revelation, but it's simply that he's using common sense and wisdom to avoid danger. But look at verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. So we're not going to listen to Paul. We're going to get out of fair havens and we're going to continue to travel despite the warning. Kind of know what's coming, right? They're not listening to the warning. Verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So the centurion wants to follow the advice of the ship's captain. He does not want to follow the advice of Paul. Verse 13 to 18 tells us what happens next. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. I remember listening to someone comment on verse 13. And so even though the text doesn't say it, it kind of implies that the crew looks at Paul at this point and they kind of smile. Say, I told you, it's fine. The wind's blowing gently. We've obtained our purpose. And what you're talking about is, is, is not true. But then here comes verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. That means it came off of the mountain. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it. They lost control and were driven along running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. That would be like a lifeboat, by the way. Then, fearing that they would run against on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Violently storm-tossed. Ecclesiastes 3.6 says there is a time for throwing a thing into the sea, namely the time of a tempest, getting rid of every weight that besets us. Now, panic is starting to set in. Now the very cargo that they were bringing to Rome, they have to jettison. They have to get rid of, because their lives are more valuable than making a sale. You can see what's happening here. Get it in your mind's eye. There's a tempest, a storm, danger. The crew is panicking. There's a violent storm toss. The boat is at the mercy of the winds and the waves. And the crew is doing all they can to try to save their lives and save the ship. And it gets even worse here in verse 19 and 20. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Do you, do you see that now? There's 
darkness. No stars. No sun. I don't know if you've ever been in a pitch black place, but it just feels so helpless. And add to that the storm. There's literally in this moment nothing they could do about their situation. Luke says, no small tempest lay on us. So much that all hope of our being saved. And that's, that hour includes Paul and Aristarchus and Luke. Not just the Romans, but the prisoners, the soldiers, the, the men who were responsible for the grain, and Paul and all of them. They thought this was it. We're going to die. But, but God... But God appears. This is such a reminiscent passage of the storm that the disciples experienced in the the gospel records where they too are storm-tossed, right? And there's no hope of their being saved until what? Until Jesus appears on the water. And just like in our lives when we feel the tempest that could be spiritual, that could be financial, That could be physical. That could be in your relationships. That could be on your job. And you feel storm-tossed and tempest-laden. The only course of action for you and me in that moment is to set our eyes on Christ. God appears or gives Paul an angelic vision in the middle of the night. And it is that angelic vision, is that truth, that revelation from God himself that gives Paul the courage to continue pressing forward and to also then encourage everyone else on the boat. Look with me in verse 21 to 25. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. Take heart. That means be encouraged. Oh, how how refreshing. The Bible says in Proverbs, how fitting are words spoken in a timely place. They are like apples of gold, right? That's what these men needed. They needed a word of encouragement because everything around them was despair and hopelessness. And Paul says, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Now, how does Paul know that? Who does he think he is? Verse 23. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul says, you should have listened to me. I don't think he's saying that in a sort of told you so haughty fashion. He's admonishing them, but he follows up with encouragement. The voice of God has assured me that I will make it to Rome. And we've seen this in the last few chapters, right? God has already told Paul, you must go to Rome. You must testify to me before Caesar. Paul is not a divine man. He just announces God's plan and promise to the people. Because Paul was destined to go to Rome. And if that was his destiny, the sovereign God will make it happen. The trip will be, will be tough, 
But there is nothing, no force in this world that can stop God's sovereign plan. God is sovereign over the wind and over the waves. And even when things seem unreasonably dark and unreasonably confusing, if God says something will happen, you could take it to the bank. It will happen. And God told Paul, you will go to Rome. And Paul may have looked around and said, there's no sun, there's no stars, there's winds, there's waves, the boat is sinking, we're all going to die. But if God says you're going, you're going. And so Paul is encouraged, and then he encourages everyone else to continue, because God gave a promise. Verse 27 and 28. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. There's no radar, of course, back then. So taking a sounding means that they throw a line overboard with a lead weight attached to it to measure the fathoms or the depth of the sea. As that number gets lower, they're going to assume they're coming closer and closer to land. Verse 29. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So, Paul says you're going to have to run on an island. They are now in the more open part of the sea, where there's tiny little islands. And one commentator, I think, is correct to say that for them, with this little tiny boat and this huge sea, to find any island is like finding a needle in a haystack. But God promised that they would survive. And so they come to this island. They basically crash into it, which we'll see in a moment. And in chapter 28, we'll learn that's the island of Malta. Look at verse 30 to 32. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. This is a little odd. Some of the, the, uh, the men want to leave in the lifeboat. But God told Paul, it's been granted for you and everyone on the boat to be saved. In other words, if they're going to be saved, they have to follow directions. And whereas they didn't listen to Paul the first time, now, seeing that Paul is onto something, they will listen to him again. And so when he rebukes them and says, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. You've got to stay on this ship. The Bible tells us they listen. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Now, I have to be honest, I cannot relate to that. Fourteen days and they don't realize. But I think there's something about being at sea and being storm-tossed and getting nauseous that you probably don't realize how hungry you are. I'll take that for granted there. Verse 34. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Wow, verse 35 sounds familiar, doesn't it? Let me read that again. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. I don't think this was communion. Clearly, Paul would not take the Lord's Supper with a bunch of unbelievers. But it's also clear that Luke is pointing us to the bread of life himself. Verse 36. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Verse 37. We were all 
276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing it out the wheat into the sea. They're throwing out everything. They've, they've had their fill. It, now it's not important that we get the grain to Rome. It's more important that we live. Verse 39 to 41. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with the beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken off by the surf. So here they are on the island of Malta, and the ship is wrecked. That means they're not going to be able to use this ship anymore. Just like the angel said to Paul, all will be saved, but not the ship. Once again, the prophecy came true. So verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim and escape. Why? Because if these prisoners don't make it to their destination, who's to blame? The soldiers. So the soldiers decide we'll, we'll kill them because if they escape and we, we find them somewhere, I'm going to be in trouble. Might as well kill them and, and, and maybe tell Caesar that you know, they drowned at sea or something. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, himself a prisoner, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and their rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. Verse 44b, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. That's quite a story. A lot of details, a lot of locations. I don't think it's incidental that Luke records all of these things. But we who have had our eyes opened by grace can clearly see the hand of God in the midst of the storm. Let me move on now, having looked at this entire account, to some observations about the journey. I'll be brief. Of course, when a preacher says that, I don't know what that means. But I will be as brief as I can to give you seven observations about the journey. But I want to to start by saying this. The story we just read is a true story. It's not an allegory. It's not some myth to just make us feel good. It's a true story about God's sovereignty in bringing Paul on his way to Rome like he promised. But at the same time that it's a true story, there are definitely parallels between this true story and the journey that we are all on. You might not be on a boat right now, but you are on a journey. If you have turned from your sin and you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior... You are on a journey toward heaven. But that journey will not be without hiccups and delays and storms. And so just as we learn things about the storm on the Mediterranean Sea, you and I can learn things about the storms in our lives from this passage. So let me give you seven things. Number one, wisdom is necessary. Just, just the basic common sense principles that they used, sailing among the lee, based upon their nautical experience, knowing the conditions of your surroundings, as Jesus said, know the signs of the times, knowing our resources. They knew what kind of resources they have. Do you know what resources you have? 
When the darkness of sin rears its head against you, do you realize the resource you have of God's word? Well, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he used the resource of God's word. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Man shall not live by bread alone. You might feel confused when, when you're going through the violent storm of temptation. But brothers and sisters, we've been equipped with resources. The spirit of God. The gospel that reminds us that there's no condemnation in Christ. And the word of God that can fight off the darts of the wicked one. But all of that takes wisdom to know how to use. The Bible talks about wisdom as more precious than gold, more valuable than silver. And so I ask you, brother or sister, even those of you right now who are not going through any storms, I hate to tell you storms are coming, but right now is the time to continue to amass for yourself wisdom from God's word so that you can take heed and stand when the storms of life pass over you. Wisdom is necessary on the journey. Secondly, I need to remind you, though you probably know this already, that in the journey there will be unexpected delays and difficult trials. This is why we reject with all of our energy the so-called prosperity gospel. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Any teaching that says if you follow Jesus, your health and your wealth and the comfort of your life every day will be a Friday. Your best life now. That's not why we follow Christ. We follow Christ because he's God. Because he forgave our sins. Because he's the Lord who will bring us to heaven. But Jesus never, ever promised us a life of ease and comfort. Rather, he promised us a cross. Take up your cross and follow me. Paul says everyone who desires to live righteously in Christ will suffer persecution. So long as we live in these sin-cursed bodies, in this sin-cursed world, we will experience difficulties in this life. And so don't be surprised, brothers, when you are overtaken by those difficulties. Patiently wait on God. Some of you for years have been praying for certain things in your life and you've yet to see those answers. I tell you, wait upon the Lord and you will renew your strength. Number three, there is rest in the midst of the journey. There is rest. I don't think it's incidental that they rested at a place called Fair Havens, which means good harbor. The Bible says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run in and are safe. The paradox, brothers and sisters, about living as Christians in this world is that, as one theologian said, and I've probably said many times, we are people of the future living in the present. You already are seated in heavenly places. You've been made right with God. You are accepted in the Beloved. And things might seem so chaotic right now in your life, at your home, in your marriage, on your job, in your neighborhood, in the world itself when you turn on the news. But the paradox is there is rest for the Christian. What we do right now is rest. We come to the Lord's day. It doesn't mean we forget all our troubles, but we take our troubles to the Lord. And he gives us a peace that passes all understanding. It's been said that peace is not the absence of conflict. 
It is the presence of God. God does not promise to take you out of all of the storms in life. But He promises to be with you in the midst of them. That's why I love how Luke phrases Paul's eating bread. It's just eating bread on a boat, right? Eating bread on a boat with hungry men who haven't eaten in 14 days, right? But the way he phrases it, Paul took bread and blessed it and distributed it. That points us to the Lord's Supper. That that points us to the fact that you can be here in this room right now struggling with your faith. But if you have just faith of a mustard seed, you come today to this table and you grab the elements and you feast upon Christ by faith. There is rest for you. There's an assurance for you in these elements. Not that they themselves save you, but they remind you and bring you and transport you to the reality that your sins are forgiven. That the greatest storm in your life, which is your separation from God, has been reconciled. And you can have that assurance in the midst of whatever storm you are going through. When we rest... When we find rest, I don't mean laziness. I don't mean binge-watching Netflix when there's things to do. But pure, peaceful rest in God during the storm of life. It is a foretaste of heaven where we will rest with the Lord forever. Jonathan Edwards said this, What tranquility there will be in heaven. Who can express the fullness and blessedness of this peace? What a calm is this. How sweet and holy and joyous. What a haven of rest to enter. After having passed through the storms and tempests of this world, in which pride and selfishness and envy and malice and scorn and contempt and contention and vice are as waves of a restless ocean, always rolling and often dashed about in violence and fury, what a canaan of rest to come to. After going through this waste and howling wilderness, full of snares and pitfalls and poisonous serpents, where no rest could be found. I look forward to that day. And we have a glimpse of that every time we meet together and we go before the Word of God. Number four, we must listen to the right voices. If there's anything that we learn from Acts 27 is that they were wrong for not listening to Paul the first time. Listen, most of us would say on, a, on a, a test, if I gave you a test, should we follow the Bible, yes or no? I think we'd all say yes. But it's those times of uncertainty, those times of chaos, those times of waiting on God to fulfill an answer to prayer, where we are most vulnerable. We become so vulnerable, having itching ears, that we might flock ourselves to those whether people in person or people online that give us what we want to hear. Be careful not to just listen to those who affirm your already held beliefs, but those whose advice is rooted in God's word. Now, Paul received an angelic vision. You and I are not receiving angelic visions today, but we have the revelation of God. And when someone speaks into our life, Based upon this book, this infallible book, not their own advice, but this infallible book, it might seem to us in the moment unpleasant because all we care about in that moment is getting ourselves out of the storm. But that's when we need it the most. And I say this, brothers and sisters, be careful when you go through these tough times in life not to let your guard down, 
but to listen to the right voices who are rooted in God's word. Number five, we are in this together. I have to point out the fact that this boat, 276 people, most of whom not believers, but Paul was with Luke, was with um, Aristarchus. This is a group project. Your storm, whatever it might be, is not just you. If you're a member of this body, it affects the whole body. Paul's presence on the ship affected this ship to get to Rome safely. Not listening to his voice affected everyone else to be put in danger. Our decisions affect one another. And if you're going through a storm of life right now, it is imperative and good for you to share that with your brothers and sisters because we bear each other's burdens. You were not meant to weather that storm by yourself. And it's so easy when we're going through these difficult times to sort of pull away from everyone else. But we must stay together in the boat. Just as Paul said, if, if we're going to be saved, everyone's got to stay here. We stay together. We fight together. We pray together. We confess to one another. We intercede for one another. That's how the body of Christ works. We are in this together. Number six. Remember these two last years, number six and number seven. God designed the journey for his purposes. God is sovereign over all things. He knows the names of all those ports. He knows exactly which direction they're headed. He knows exactly which way the wind is going to blow. And you might be battling something right now that you would think, no one's ever gone through this. Why am I going through this? God designed it for his purposes in your life. It's a hard truth to hear sometimes, right? The Bible presents us a God who is sovereign over all things. And I don't have time to get into all the theology behind this, but God is the primary mover and he uses secondary causes. So you might say, is is the thing that I'm going through right now the product of my own bad choices? Is it the product of the sinfulness in the world? Or is it the product of God's sovereignty in my life? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. You and I have made really bad choices and God has spared us from consequences. That's his mercy. And sometimes we make really bad choices and God allows us to go through the consequences of those choices. That's his wisdom guiding us, helping us to learn from our mistakes. God powerfully orders all things. Sometimes the storm is a result of standing up for righteousness. You've done nothing wrong, but you're being persecuted. God allows that in your life as well. Remember, Thessalonians tells us that God's will for our lives is our sanctification, our conformity to Christ. And for you and I to grow in any attribute of Christ where we lack, He will bring us through situations that will stretch our faith. God is not a genie in a bottle where you say, God, I wish for patience. And God just snaps his fingers and says, I now declare you more patient. If you wish for patience and you pray for patience, you know what God's going to do? He's going to bring you through situations that will give you more patience. He will do the same with love and forgiveness and justice and wisdom and holiness. And if you hold his hand during the process, you will see him work. But if you let go and doubt and only want relief, you will have a difficult time. God designed the journey for his purposes. I don't have the answer. 
to your specific situation. Why am I waiting on the Lord for this thing? Why did this person betray me? Why am I going through this battle? I don't know specifically, but I can tell you generally speaking, God is invested in your holiness. He loves you and he is enacting in you things that would make you look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And number seven, thank God he will bring us to his desired destination. I say his desired destination may not be your desired destination, but God has a destination for you. And it might be in this life, more holiness. It might be more patience. It might be more love, but he will bring you to that. Ultimately, the destination we're all headed to is heaven above. Paul was meant to go to Rome. And if God meant for Paul to go to Rome, there's nothing that can stop it. And you, believer in Christ, you are bound for the promised land. And there's nothing in this world that can stop you from getting there. Let me bring this to a close with some observations about Jonah, Paul, Christ, and us. And no, that's not the title of a new rock band. Jonah, Paul, Christ, and us. I can't help, and many commentators the same, to notice a parallel between the life of Jonah and the life of Paul. If you don't know the life of Jonah, I encourage you to read that book. You can read it in one setting. But if you do know, you might remember that Jonah ran away from God trying to disobey God's commands to go and preach to Nineveh that they would repent. Paul, on the other hand, is in this situation because he's obeying God to go preach to Rome. Jonah is trying to escape from going to Nineveh, which Nineveh happened to be the capital of the empire that was oppressing Israel at the time, the Assyrians. Rome is going to Rome, which uh, Paul is going to Rome, which just happens to be the capital of the empire that is oppressing Israel at this time, Rome. Jonah is trying to escape the commission to preach to anyone outside of Israel. He doesn't want Gentiles to repent. Paul is the apostle going to the Gentiles, even risking his life that the Gentiles might repent. When Jonah is on the boat, because of his disobedience, he puts everyone on board at danger. And there's a violent storm that almost kills them all until they throw Jonah overboard. But Paul's presence in the boat is the only thing that guarantees that that boat will make it safely to Rome. Only because Paul is there is the boat spared. And there's many other parallels between Jonah and Paul. And we don't know what the Holy Spirit's intention was, of course. And it's not so much that we can declare that Paul is the new Jonah. But it is to say that the New Testament always solves the problem that's presented in the Old Testament. God's desire is for all nations, not just the Israelites, all nations to be saved. And where Jonah was disobedient, Paul was obedient. So whose example should we follow? Jonah is always uh, held up in, in the midst of an assembly as, don't follow this man's example. Don't say no when God says go. But Paul is a man that we can follow his example, even, even risking our life and our comfort to follow God's will. Perhaps this is the one imperative that's embedded in this chapter. The one command for us to walk away with this morning is that unlike the crew... 
And unlike Jonah, Paul listened. Paul listened to the true pilot. He listened to God's voice. The only voice that provides hope in the midst of uncertainty. The only voice that provides peace in the midst of chaos. Paul listened to this voice. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, who are you listening to? When the storms of life overwhelm you, who do you listen to? When there seems to be no light in your life, who do you listen to? Do you feel, as Luke records in this text, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned? Then I encourage you to listen. To listen to the true pilot. It's not the centurion. It's not the captain of the ship. It's not the owner of the cargo. The true pilot in this story is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may not receive an angelic vision as Paul did, but you and I have the words of Christ. And so when you are going through these battles and storms, believe on Christ. He is the sure and steady anchor that holds your faith. He is the refuge and the strong tower and the mighty fortress that keeps us safe. He is the one who can calm the storm with one word. He is the one who in his presence is the fullness of joy. He is the one who spreads a table for us in the midst of our enemies. He is the one who even walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He is my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer, the captain of our ship, the one who fights for us, our Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, Jesus Christ. And you can trust in him. And so follow him. Don't be as that cheap bumper sticker. I'm sorry if you have this bumper sticker, by the way. But this bumper sticker that says God is my co-pilot. If God is your co-pilot, you need to switch seats. He is the one who guides us through the storms of life and follow him. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And his voice is so trusted. You will know that you will follow him to your destination. Not by sight, but by faith. Listen, I don't, I don't know... Nor do I pretend to know what the outcome of your storm, whatever storm you're weathering, will be. I'm not a prophet, and I can't tell you when it will end. I can't tell you whether the prognosis will be good. I can't tell you if that difficult person in your life will repent. I can't tell you if you'll get that job or that relationship you've been waiting for. I can't tell you if God will heal you. Even Paul himself sought the Lord multiple times for something that the Lord replied, My grace is sufficient for you. But I can tell you this. His promises are true for you, no matter the circumstances. You can have a peace that passes all understanding. You can have joy in your heart. You can be content in all things because he fights for you and he's going to prepare a place for you. And when the Lord purchased you by his blood, you and I were given a one-way ticket to glory where you will experience no more storms, no more disease, no more sin, no more strife, and you will dwell with Christ and see him face to face, and there will be peace forevermore. And you will be able to say, along with Paul and along with John Newton, the hymn writer, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Twas grace that brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. Amen.